Thank you. So good evening, Sangha. Can everybody hear me? So tonight I am going to talk about one of my very favorite suttas in all of the Nikayas. It's called the um, <clears throat> Vipalasa Sutta, the Vipalasa Sutta. And um, so let me read it. These four, O oh yogis, are distortions of perception, distortions of thought, distortions of view. Sensing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure and suffering, assuming self where there is no self, sensing the unlovely as lovely, gone astray with wrong views, beings misperceive with distorted minds, bound in the bondage of Mara, those people are far from safety. They are beings that go on flowing, going again from death to birth. But when in the world of darkness, Buddhas arise to make things bright, they present this profound teaching which brings suffering to an end. When those with wisdom have heard this, they recuperate their right mind. They see change in what is changing, suffering where there's suffering, non-self in what is without self. They see unlovely as such. By this acceptance of right view, they overcome all suffering. By this acceptance of right view, they overcome all suffering. That's a pretty good promise to overcome all suffering. So I really love this sutta because it really gets at the, the bottom of, um, you know, the first noble truth. You know, why is life so difficult? And essentially, I think it's saying that um, when we can't see clearly, when our minds are deluded by avijja, ignorance, which is the root cause of this vipalasa or this distortion, you know, we can't see clearly and we expect life to be other than it is. And when we expect things that are absolutely impermanent. You know, I love the way Pascal talks about ephemeralness, things that are ephemeral to be solid and permanent, and they're not. You know, we're surprised and hurt by that. And when we expect um, things that we go after that, you know, our society tells us, our culture tells us, our world tells us is the source of pleasure when we go after those things but still never seem to get totally satisfied. And when we are trying to live up to some ideal of self also sold by, you know, 
sold as a bill of goods to us about what ourselves should be like, you know, what it means to be a success, what it means to be attractive, what it means to be a good, you know, name the good, a good worker, a good family member, a good parent, a good child, a good Buddhist practitioner, a good mindfulness meditator. You know, when we believe that there is some permanent self that even could have any of those qualities permanently without change, not based on causes and conditions, you know, that is essentially why life is so difficult because we essentially have this avijja. And avijja, some of you might know, it means ignorance. It's uh, the Pali word for ignorance. And it is also the beginning of something we call dependent origination, which is like one of the deepest teachings of how this whole process is working. And um, ignorance is at the beginning of that list of characteristics too. I just say that as a way of saying just how important this idea of ignorance or or distortions of perception, thought, and view are. It's really fundamental to, you know, foundational uh, teachings of Buddhism and of the Buddha. And uh, I found this teaching particularly clear and really useful. So I I think about this pretty often, and uh, I like to give the talk. So the Vipalasas. So avijja fundamentally is ignorance or not really understanding the Four Noble Truths. You know, the Four Noble Truths are um, super mundane right view, really, and not even believing it or knowing what they are, but knowing it from a perspective of insight, not just a conceptual understanding of it, of actually getting a big hit of it from insight and seeing the truth of them in our daily life. So what are the, um, so there are four distortions, and what I find really fascinating, uh, the way that the Buddha teaches this uh, sutta, the way he talks about it, is that these four distortions are actually at three levels of experience. And I think this is really useful to think about and um, to contemplate. So I'm going to, you know, we love the Buddha, right? Because he was, he had all of these lists and he talked about the dimensions of all these experiences. He was a very deep thinker. But he also said that all of these words and these concepts were a finger pointing at the moon, right? They were a finger pointing on reality that goes beyond any particular words or conceptual overlay. So I invite you very, you know, sincerely to listen to my words, but also to let them just sink into chitta. You know, I've told many of you when I was, um, I was so lucky to sit uh, a month or five weeks with Ajahn Suchito this last November, just a few months ago, it seems like. And every time I saw him in an individual interview, he would say, Bonnie... One of your problems is you don't give enough authority to chitta. You don't give enough authority to chitta. And that was so beautiful. What he was saying is that, you know, you have some insight. You you know how certain things work, but you're letting your thinking mind tell you what to do. 
And he said, that is not going to get you very far. He said, you know, when you don't know what to do or when you're in, uh, you have confusion, just be quiet and just go to Chitta, go to your heart and say, what is needed now? What is needed now? Or ask, what is this? What is this? And he said, don't let your thinking mind tell you the answer. That's great advice, I thought. And I try to do that. So I just wanted to tell you that. So um, the three levels of ignorance. The first level of ignorance is distortions of perception. Sanya vipalasa. Sanya, is that how you say it? And Pali is perception, just perceiving things. And so the Buddha says very fundamentally that we are misperceiving things, even to look at them and to know what they are. Sanya vipalasa. And um, one good example of that is you're walking down the road here on this beautiful place, and you see a stick on the road and you think it's a snake. That's a distortion of perception, right? You're not seeing clearly what that thing is. And what would happen in that regard is, you know, you're probably, like many of you, you're probably alert to dangerous animals. (laughs) And you might think, oh, that's a dangerous animal, and get startled and start thinking, you know, what's the chances of me getting bitten by a snake? And then that would start a whole bunch of thoughts in your mind. But that original um, um, Sanya Vipalasa, or perception distortion, you know, that happens all the time with us. I mean, that happens walking around the center all the time. I mean, any perception that you have of your fellow yogis or what's going on in your room or or, you know, at so many levels. Um, If we're not seeing the three characteristics in in any particular perception, if we're not perceiving impermanence and the ephemeral um, conditioned and, you know, nature of whatever we're looking at, if we're seeing it as either inherently pleasant or inherently unpleasant or having some inherent ability to be satisfying for us and if we're seeing it in relation to some uh, continued existence that it's really a real thing and not something that humans have thought of to make in order to make their life easier you know we're not seeing the true nature of of um, of our environment And we often think that what happens is that we look at the environment and we see objects in the environment or things happening in the environment and then um, we're interpreting the data and it's a bottom-up process, right? We see the data, it goes up and it gives us thoughts and then it goes up and it determines how we view the world. But actually, that's not how the process works at all. And hopefully, 
we'll be able to see that once we go through the rest of the vipalasas. So that's at the um, level of just perception. One way to think about it is there is so much stuff in our environment, you can't be aware of everything that's going on. I mean, even in this room right now, right? There's so many different objects and things in this room, you know, there's probably so much stuff going on here that you haven't even noticed or realized was in the room. So just coming in, there's something in each one of us that tells us what to pay attention to in this room. You know, what's important or what's worthwhile or what somehow informs our life, you know, one way or another. So even what we know about in this room is... um, It's not just a open and fluid and not, um, you know, free, free of distortions uh, knowledge of what is in this room. So that's the first level of uh, distortions, distortions of perceptions. And then one level up from that are distortions of thoughts. That's chitta vipalasa. I guess that was, um, you know, I guess it's chitta. So that's when your chitta is not telling you the truth, I guess. (laughs) So chitta vipalasa, that's distortion of thought. And so that happens when, you know, let's say, taking that instance of walking around the road in this beautiful place and seeing a stick in the road and thinking that it was a uh, snake, all of the thoughts that that would have generated. Like, oh my gosh, you know, don't they uh, take care of the animals here? And that poor bird at that window is there every day. They must not care at all about the animals here. You know, they're not protecting the retreated to come in. They're letting all the animals do whatever they do and not protecting our, our environment for meditation and for retreat. You know, we might start having thoughts about, you know, what the values of this retreat center are or how much they care about the land or the environment. If we didn't know anything about that, we would start making assumptions about that. And think about that. We do that all the time. You know, we've done that. We have made assumptions about what's the matter with that bird, (laughs) haven't we? Like, if they did this, we could help that bird. If we did that, we could help the bird. Or the reason the bird is doing that is probably because of this. And, um, you know, we've gotten a little bit more facts about what has happened, and it clears up some of our distorted thoughts. You know, it makes us think differently about what's really happening here. But, you know, there are a number of different thoughts that we could have about that bird. Some, you know, wonderful yogi wrote me a note about the bird, and I thought, well... Maybe the bird is just playing out some really negative karma. So, you know, it's being, you know, having some suffering and working out some negative karma. So in its next life, it's going to come back and be pretty close to enlightenment or something. Who knows what's really happening with that? And anything that we could think about it is really our projection onto that thing. So that's an example of a... uh, Chitta vipalasa, a distortion of thought. 
you know, all of the things that we think are going on with our other yogis in this room, or the things that you are you think are going on with Pascal and I, and Jill and Janet as the people holding the space, you know, and the things that we think are going on with all of you. You know, we have lunch together every day and talk about how everybody's doing. <laughs> And we try to piece together what we know. <laughs> and I'm sure there's a fair amount of people losses going on in that as well. You know, just trying to hold the space. And, you know, one thing about thoughts is, and, you know, I don't want to get into big ontological, philosophical stuff, but when you think about it, you know, we're humans who have been you know, relatively new to the planet. And, um, you know, everything that we have uh, thought up or everything that we've created for society and for science and for living together has all been just out of our imagination. And, um, you know, in higher education, we have all of these wonderful theories about deconstruction and about how everything... You know, I love the way Pascal said... You know, the reason why he can think that he owns the bike is because there's an agreement that he owns the bike. And uh, the way I like to say that is, if you believe in God or a great spirit or a higher deity, God doesn't have a three-by-five card in heaven that says, Pascal owns that bike. You know? Just as there's not a three-by-five card in heaven that says, this is what women are like, this is what men are like, this is what... Um, transgender people are like, this is what LGBTQ people are like, this is what American Indian people are like, this is what European immigrants are like. You know, all of that is a product of history and agreement and um, actually hugely informed by a lot of greed, hatred, and delusion. And um, so there is nothing inherent in this table, you know, God doesn't have or, you know, the big master plan doesn't have a picture of a table up there saying this is a table. It has an inherent existence. You know, other than the fact that it's really useful to put our little icon and our glasses of water on. It's functional in this moment. And uh, it's put together by the causes and conditions of needing some place to put our microphone and our water. It's empty of any other existence besides the agreement of what it is and its use in this moment. So I wanted to say that. And that's fundamental to both to the Theravada and all of the Buddhist traditions is the emptiness, the emptiness of all of our existence we can decide what it means to be a human. It's not inherent in any of us what that means. But that is more ultimate reality. Relative reality is that we have all of these thoughts. We think that the world works like A, B, and C. And those are dita vipal- uh, uh, chitta vipalasa or distortions of thought. 
And the, mo- and the biggest distortion is the third and highest level of distortion, and that is dita vipalasa, or distortions of view. And those are exactly what some of the biggest problems of the human race and our relatives, the animal kingdom, are having. These distortions of view of how things work and how things should work and what makes us happy. And this is the deepest and most difficult level of wrong view or distortions of view to really look at. And how it works is, you know, it starts with perceptions, wrong perceptions, going up to wrong thoughts, and then informing the view or how life really works. And this distortion of view are our habitual... uh, often culturally situated ideas of, um, you know, what it means to be this race or this gender or the fact that, you know, right now in many places there's only two genders even. Or that, you know, this is the meaning of uh, human races or human um, beings' relationship to animals or relationship to the planet. You know, there's very specific ideas about what those are that are absolutely invisible to us most of the time. But those views are informing um, what we actually pay attention to when we come into this room, you know, what we think that we deserve at any given moment or what we don't deserve. And um, it's determining so much about what is going on in the planet right now. And a lot of those views are absolutely invisible to many of us. You know, that goes back to what some of the underlying definitions of what vipalasas mean. It means a distortion, an illusion, a, um, a phantom, a story and a hallucination. So these are three levels of vipalasa or not being able to see clearly. At the level of perception of knowing what something is. At the level of thoughts of seeing something and then thinking about it. Well, this is this, it's useful for that. And that at the highest level, the distortions of view. And the distortions of view absolutely, you know, like I just said, determine what we pay attention to and what we see when we're looking at things. And what causes this? You know, what is the cause of this distortion? It's ignorance. And then at these three levels, there are four distortions. And, you know, we have talked about that the whole time. These are... In our Buddhist um, cosmology and our Buddhist understanding, the three characteristics of reality that um, you know we don't see very clearly, we don't know intuitively, we don't know as insights which actually change the way we walk around in the world. We can know these things conceptually, but when we just know them conceptually, and even agree that that's true, they haven't necessarily changed how we are in the world. And insight, you know, through insight meditation and seeing from intuitive awareness, getting a big hit of these three characteristics in 
Buddhist awareness is what really changes us and reduces our suffering. So what are those three um, characteristics of reality again? You know, the first is um, thinking things are permanent. We become attached or we have attachment to uh, things. We have avijja, you know, um, ignorance, which leads to attachment. And this attachment is fueled by the fact that we think things are permanent or that we think that they have some inherent existence and that they're real and not conditional. So we don't see a Nietzsche or impermanence. We don't become, we become attached because we don't see the basic unsatisfactoriness of conditioned existence. I'm, you know, everything out there, everything on, on our social level, there's this wonderful um, Zen Buddhist philosopher named David Loy. I'm sure many of you know him. He wrote a wonderful book called, what is it? Sex, money, sex, money, um, war, and dharma. Is that the name of it? Something like that. But it's about how greed, hatred, and delusion, you know, the uh, underneath, um, you know, delusion or ignorance is the root of all of it. And out of ignorance come greed or wanting things that we think will make us happy and pushing away aversion or hate for things that we think make us unhappy. And David Lloyd does a great job of talking about what that looks like at the social level. I mean, look at our economic system. It's based on, you know, telling all of us that the way that we look isn't good enough. We should look like this. We should own this. We should drive this. We should live here. We should have this job. We should have this education. Our kids should be like this. Our retirement should be like that. We should never age. We should be, you know, a certain ethnicity, a certain gender, a certain height, a certain sexual orientation. There's a lot of messages like that surrounding us every day. And those are Vipa losses, absolutely. Those are distortions of reality that impact us in ways that we don't even know it. They are impacting us every single day. And, you know, when we sit on our cushion and we have all of these messages, we're telling ourselves, why am I like this? You know, why aren't I prettier? Why aren't I smarter? You know, why am I so bad? And we think that that's really personal. We think that, you know, that is something very personal to us. You know, that's what our our system is based on. Giving us that message every single day. So, the four Vipa losses are thinking things are permanent, thinking things are satisfying, that we should be like this and we'd be happy, thinking that we're some permanent self that should have this quality or that quality. And I love this fourth one. I just even understood this fourth one last week. The fourth of Vipalasa is we attach because we see things as desirable that may lead to harm to ourselves and to others. And I didn't understand that one. I, I've given this talk a number of times. I totally skipped that one. <laughs> 
Nobody noticed, but I never talked about that one because I didn't know what it meant. And last week I was, um, you know, sitting with the Venerable Analio, who's like this incredible scholar on early Buddhist text, you know, this is what the Buddha taught. And he was talking about, we were talking about worldly and unworldly pleasure. Have you guys ever, some of you might have thought about that. There's such a thing as worldly pleasure, which is what we get when we eat an ice cream cone, when we have those wonderful dinners that we have here, that might give some of us gas because a very vegetarian diet will do that. (laughs) Or, um, you know, anything, you know, even taking a beautiful walk in the woods. It's not that, you know, worldly life or out there that there's not pleasure. Of course there is. But it's worldly pleasure. And there is such a thing as unworldly pleasure. There is such a thing as unworldly pleasure. And actually the Buddha, that the acknowledgement of that had a huge impact on the Buddha. In fact, I think I have the... Um, Maybe I didn't bring it, but, you know, there's a real turning point in the Buddha's life when, you know, he was a, uh, you know, when he left home and he wanted to follow a path to become enlightened, he tried all these aesthetic practices, right? He would have one teaspoon of rice a week or something and not drink, and, you know, he really just tortured his body. And one day he was sitting there, and they say that he was close to death, And he just happened to remember. He happened to remember when he was a child. And he was out in the field with his father. His father was doing something, and he was out in the field. And he remembered. He was sitting down. He was sitting in the sun. He was very relaxed. And his mind got really concentrated. And he actually got really happy. He felt this incredible pleasure that was all internal-based, and it wasn't based on anything externally. And he said to himself, wow, you know, I'm really just, you know, torturing my body because I think pleasure is bad. Why am I afraid of this pleasure? Why am I afraid of that pleasure that I had as a boy? And is that pleasure somehow, could that be helpful to me to become awakened? Could that be helpful to me to actually be free of conditioned existence? And he said, oh my gosh, yes. That is absolutely a very wholesome thing, this unworldly pleasure that's due to spiritual practices. It's totally wholesome, and it's onward leading. It's onward leading into awakening and to more insight and to more understanding of the reality of the world. So he said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go get myself a bowl of soup and meditate until I get into jhana. (laughs) But the, um, you know, the, the um, moral or the um, point of that story is that, and, you know, this is something that Joseph Goldstein's been talking a lot about, something that Venerable Analyo talked a lot about last week that, and many of you have told me that you're sitting in meditation and feeling all of this joy and happiness, and that is exactly onward leading into even more insight and to even more... Um, wellness based on something internally, wellness based on your practice, and wellness not based on how things are in the external world. So I want to tell you 
that if you're experiencing any joy or any, uh, you know, second foundation of, of second foundation of mindfulness, Vedana, any feeling tone that's pleasurable, that comes from, you know, the meditation practice itself, go for it. <laughs> Make that, you know, even for a little while, or you can see what happens or watch what happens. And, you know, I'm going to tell you, you only get to that place, the seven factors of enlightenment. That's, you know, part of the fourth foundation. The Buddha said, when you do this mindfulness meditation, you're going to get into the fourth foundation of mindfulness. You're going to swim past the breakers of the five hindrances, those, you know, hindrances to um, wellness and hindrances to well-being, you know, heart well-being, and you're going to get into the area of the seven factors of awakening. And there's some really deep pleasure there, some really deep sense of commit, of contentment that is part of the spiritual journey, that is a gift of the spiritual journey. And if any of you get there, don't be afraid to actually make that pleasure your anchor for a while. And when you're getting there... You're actually, you know, one thing about that level of uh, pleasure when we're doing the practice, a lot of people have said, you know, it's, it's probably a little bit less concentrated than the actual true jhanas. And for those of you who don't know about concentration practice, there, and I have been in these jhanas, and I can tell you, they are better than sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> they are. They're incredible states of bliss. And those states of bliss and, and even the pleasure of the seven factors of awakening, there is some element of anatta or not-self in them. You can't get there if, if there's an ego saying, I'm trying to get there and this is what I'm going to do to get there. If there's an ego that wants to get there, that's the exact opposite of what it takes to get there. Getting into the seven factors and when you're relaxed and trusting and have confidence in this method and have confidence that you absolutely deserve to get there, and everybody does, um, you know, the striving goes away and the process itself kicks in and you get guided there by the process. That's what gets us there is the unfolding of the path. It's not our will. It's not our egos. It is the unfolding of the lawful process of the path. So trust that. And if there is some unworldly pleasure there, you know, don't be afraid to say, oh, that's really interesting. I'm going to anchor my attention in that for a while and just rest in that and see, you know, see if you can't have some investigation and, you know, just see what happens with it. So that's the fourth vipalasa. The vipalasa of um, thinking things are beautiful or thinking things will make you happy that are not going to make you happy. And not knowing really where your well-being is. And that's one of the promises of the path is that it doesn't matter who's president. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it doesn't matter. 
all of those external things that we say, if life was like this, then I could be happy. You know, thinking that external conditions have to be a certain way for us to have contentment or to have a sense of meaning or to have um, some purpose or for things to be right. They don't have to be that way. I mean, that's the promise. And, you know, I think seeing, you know, when the Buddha became enlightened, he created a monastic tradition in a way to even just reinforce that. He saw so much of the greed, hatred, and delusion that just runs society that, that he says, I don't need that. And he wasn't doing it in order to get enlightened. He was doing it because he was enlightened. And he knew where his contentment and his happiness was. It wasn't based on all those external things. And he knew that. You know, I, um, I'm sure, I probably said this in a Dharma talk, but I'll say it again because it was such a big eye-opener for me. And that was, again, actually last week sitting, you know, with the monks. I think monastic retreats are good for that. Or, you know, I sat with Ajahn Suchito for a month, and then I sat with uh, the Venerable Analyo, both monks. And seeing their level of well-being, of happiness, sitting with them, oh my God, I'm going to cry sitting with them and just seeing their wisdom and their love and, you know, knowing that it was all internally all produced by just practicing this path. Let me give you an example. This was really big for me. So, um, you know, uh, the steady steady retreat last week, it was a steady retreat with um, the Venerable Inalio. Wow. And um, so we would talk in the morning and we would practice all afternoon. And he led us through, like, every sitting we had with him, you know, towards three or four sittings a day. You know, the guided meditations I've been doing, he would guide us through, like, an hour at a time of meditation. It was so deep and so beautiful and really inclined our mind to the insights of the Satipatthana. You know, these three insights, it really... Um, did that to us. and But one of the reflections, you know, he read a sutta about how, um, the sutta was about how um, we have to think of ourselves as slaves and think of ourselves as incarcerated people. And that kind of triggered me because in, you know, American society anyway, I'm thinking hopefully Canadians beyond that, slavery and incarceration is very racially is very racially, there's a lot of racism involved with both of those things. And uh, But one of my small group members saying, well, maybe it's not an analogy, Bonnie. Maybe if, that from the idea of an enlightened mind, we actually are slaves to greed, hatred, and delusion, and maybe we are imprisoned by what we think is making us happy. And that totally made me feel like, oh, I could totally believe that. But I was sharing that with the entire group, the plenary group. And one of the, um, one of the, uh, retreatants there, and I'm gonna be honest, the retreatant looked a lot like this one. There was like two or three people of color among a lot of majority people. You know, majority European, European Americans. And, uh, one of the, you know, European American older men got really triggered and he said, Bonnie, 
you know, I really have to take issue with what you just said. He didn't hear my second part with like, yeah, I could totally get into that if it's true that I'm imprisoned and a slave. You know, I totally can resonate with that. He heard me say that we shouldn't appropriate or think that we know what it's like to be in somebody else's skin because in a way that's stealing their voice and stealing their experience and think that we can speak on their behalf, you know, which in my... which you know, is not a very good thing to do. People need to speak on their own behalf and we should not try to, um, you know, narrate their experience. We should make space for them to narrate their own experience. And that was my point. But he got really mad at me and he was saying, Bonnie, don't you know that art is about taking license and imagining what this is like and that is like? And so he went on for a little while and the room was really quiet. And Analyo, you know what he said? He just left. He, he was silent for a few seconds, and he said, Bonnie, I love you. <laughs> that was his response. Wow. Right? It's like, who can say anything to that? And, you know, and then the room was really quiet, and the... the the session was over. And it was so funny, a couple of people came up to me and go, man, that was so cool, that was worth it to get yelled at. (laughs) (laughs) And just to have him say that in front of everybody, Bonnie, I love you. That was his only response. You know, that was one of those things where he asked Chitta, what's needed right now? And that's all I needed, you know. It was really beautiful. But, you know, that is, and again, I'm going to say this, I trigger warning. I think that's, even that for me was a first world problem. I mean, really, you know, compared to some of the stuff that's going on in the world, all of these things that we get so upset about. Do you know that a lot of the continent of Africa is starving right now? There's all of this incredible suffering in the world, and we take ourselves so seriously. And, you know, we do, you know, it's not based on what's happening externally, any of it. You know, we can do our work, and with these, um, you know, with this practice, we can trust and be confident that we can walk around the world with equanimity and graciousness and wisdom and offer to everyone even when we have crazy politicians you know go to a meeting where everybody's thinking oh my god the world is coming to an end and say hey you know let's pull it back here and realize that we have sources of well-being and sources of contentment that aren't based on who's president. So there are some common perceptual distortions that we that happen when we are on retreat. I just want to mention a few of those that are vipa losses. One is an overgeneralization. None of you guys are really doing any of that, though, right? (laughs) Which is, you know, you'll have, um, you'll maybe think, maybe you'll eat something at a meal or something, or maybe you'll have one half of a sit where you just are really restless and are wondering, what the heck am I doing here? Or you'll have a meal that 
you know, half of it will be good and the other half will give you gas. And you'll think, you'll overgeneralize and say, oh my God, I just know nothing about meditation. Or the food here is just totally not working for me. None of you have done that, right? (laughs) Or the opposite, the halo effect. You know, maybe you'll see somebody, a yogi that reminds you of somebody that was really meaningful to you. Or maybe, you know, one of us holding the container of the retreat will say something that really resonates with you and we can do nothing wrong. Right? Mental filter is a very common one. Well, that's what distortions of view do. You know? is that you won't see half of the stuff that's going on or hear half of the things that are going on in the retreat. Or you'll think that somebody needs something that they may or may not need. I mean, we don't even know if the bird needs to come in. You know, we are assuming that. Or we might think someone needs, you know, a hand on their arm or they need something and we just don't know what's happening in that situation magnification or catastrophizing you know we'll have one sit where we have really terrible thoughts about ourselves and think that that's the way we are all the time and half the time you know we think we're actually cuter and better than most people So overgeneralization, magnification, catastrophizing, one thing will happen or we'll have one, you know, and we're, and I know what this, you know, it's like to be on retreat. We're opening to the deepest stuff that we have been pressing down. So if we're doing it right, it's difficult. If it's difficult, you're doing it right. You know, you're allowing things to come up and, and, you know, some things are, uh, we have strong mindfulness and they're not personal, like thoughts we can have of things that we've done or things that have happened to us that don't seem personal at all and we can just watch them come and go. And other things that we haven't processed well or maybe we have switched, you know, squelched down, they're really sticky and they're absolutely personal, they're absolutely us. Those are the things that are creating our identities with. And, you know, they're temporary things that come on, come up or inform our mind-body process just at particular times. They're not there all the time. It's not who we are all the time. But we overgeneralize to think that that's who we are. We don't realize they're impermanent, impersonal, and imperfect nature. Or we minimize things. You know, like we might hear about another person suffering or another group of people suffering and and not even realize where we are in that. You know? How could sense be harmful? I feel sense all the time. They're part of our culture. You know, not realizing, minimizing what other people are saying about their reality. All or nothing thinking, labeling, labeling ourselves as, you know, what happens. We're losers, we're stupid, 
or we're winners and are smarter. And projection, wow. If you want to know what you're thinking, pretend what you know, pretend that you know what the person next to you is thinking. And play that out in your mind. And that'll tell you what's really underneath there. So this, again, you know, we could have a lifelong retreat based on the losses and what they look like. You know, they are the source of all of the social ills, of thinking that amassing wealth is uh, a source of happiness. Oh, you're going to love this. You probably probably didn't hear this. One big official came out and said that human beings are not do, have no right to water. <laughs> Isn't that really crazy? That human beings have no right to water. And that if, you know, a company wants to grab the water and start selling it and own it, then that's okay because humans have no right to water. That's like saying humans have no right to clean air. That's like crazy thinking. But that's, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion in our world. And please don't think that it's not going on in here. I mean, you've seen it on retreat. Has anybody noticed like crazy thinking in this mind-body process? I have seen so much crazy thinking on retreat that I essentially don't believe anything I think in. I don't. I am easily convinced otherwise. And that's and you know that is probably a prescription to let go of views. I have this other quote of this, um, you know, Brahmin coming up to the Buddha and saying, Buddha, I don't believe in anything. I don't believe in anything. And the Buddha turned to him and he said, well, thank you, Brahmin. Do you realize that that's a view too? <laughs> so anytime that we think we know something, I think it's pretty questionable. Except maybe that things are impermanent We're not who we think we are. (laughs) And that conditioned existence will never bring us ultimate happiness. So let's sit for a minute. May all beings know their inner wealth and their interconnectedness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.